So one of the things that I try to do is make sure that I focus my, my physical and my mental effort on what I'm uniquely well-placed to do. I'm very fortunate in that I'm a leader of a large team of incredibly capable and talented people. Uh, and therefore, the key to managing at scale is to delegate and empower the team as much as I possibly can and focus on what I am uniquely placed to do. Hello folks and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. My name is Steve Ingham and it's a pleasure to have you along to this episode in which we're exploring more insights and ideas from the world of performance. That is, whether you're getting to grips with it for the first time, whether you've been there and done it, or you're trying to make sense of it, then we'll think you'll find some interesting ideas here to develop your philosophy's work and influences. If you're enjoying these discussions and fancy supporting us, then it would be amazing if you could leave an honest review on iTunes. It helps us reach more people and shares the messages further. So thank you if you could do that. Equally, whatever platform you're listening on, whether it's Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, Radio Public, then please do press subscribe. This week's guest is Neil Shigani. Neil is a coxswain, and a good one too. He coxed the Oxford crew to success in the boat race in 1991. He was world champion in the Cox Bears in 2001, where I met Neil for the first time, as Matthew Pinson and James Cracknell went for the double-double. Both the Cox pairs, followed by Coxless pairs, in the World Championship Finals in the space of two hours, a story that I feature in my book, How to Support a Champion. Neil shares the insight behind successfully leading, coaching and supporting a crew from within the boat and offers some perceptive advice about the dynamics that he had to manage in a unique role where he's in it, he's involved, but he's not pulling on the oar. Neil has also held a number of prominent leadership positions at the BBC, Sky Broadcasting, a board member of UK Sport, Interim Chief Executive Officer of British Rowing, Steward at Henley Royal Regatta and currently Chief Financial Officer for Google in Europe, Middle East and Africa. So what Neil hasn't experienced about leadership in sports and business is probably not worth knowing about. What you will hear, and what I particularly enjoyed about this interview, though, is the level of thought, intentionality and consideration that Neil demonstrated in his views and actions. Now, I wondered if this had developed through the roles that he's held and the experiences that he has had, or whether the wisdom he carries is the reason that he has led and succeeded at the very top. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Steve. Oh, it's great how, to be here. How are you? I, I'm not too bad, actually. I've just had a holiday. Um, two weeks spent Caribbean in the US, so feeling a little bit relaxed, which is good. Now, um, I'm keen to talk to you all things sport, business, all different aspects, um, but it'd be really useful if you could just give us a few hints as to your background, your educational route, how you got into sport, just just give us a flavour as to where have you come from? <laughs> uh, where have I come from? Gosh, um, that could be quite a profound question. <laughs> yeah, it could. Go, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I was born and brought up in London um, and 
um, I went to a school uh, in southwest London called Hampson School, which uh, had a very strong um, tradition in rowing. And so first came across the sport of rowing at Hampton, albeit that I didn't uh, get into it uh, really there. But from there I went to Oxford uh, and I did get into rowing much more there as a coxswain, uh, so a steersman of uh, boats, and uh, ended up uh, representing the university in the university boat race uh, in 1991, uh, along with um, Matthew Pinson, now Sir Matthew Pinson. And from there I got into the British under-23 team and then eventually into the British senior team and spent some time in and out of the British team um, up to 2001 uh, when raced in the World Championships and uh, again with uh, with Matthew Pinson and with James Cracknell and uh, we won a, a gold medal um, there in the Cox pair and indeed they won a gold medal in the Cox's pair. So, um, and that was how we met and uh, on the banks of Egbolet Lake and... Um, that was uh, that was amazing, amazing year. So, um, so, so, what did you study at Oxford? Give us the clue there. So, I studied geography uh, at Oxford mainly because it was my favourite subject at school, uh, mm-hmm. and I didn't really have a clear idea as to what I wanted to do with that. I then did a, a postgraduate course in politics and sociology. Um, truth be told, that was an opportunity for me to stay an extra year at Oxford, make sure I got my blue. Um, <laughs> And certainly no regrets about doing that. And how does how do you get into being a Cox? Uh, the, you had a, it sounds like you had a, a background there where you were familiar with, you were influenced by a, a school that was that was focused on rowing. So there was an influence there. But how do you get recruited? How do you get pulled into this? Um, well, uh, physique has quite a bit to do with it. Physique. Um, uh, the... The physical requirements uh, of being a cox uh, are that you must be light. Um, people think you must be small, but actually, really, it's it's weight that that matters, um, and have a desire to want to uh, get into a boat and 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 lead uh, as well as steer. Uh, and so uh, that was something that I was keen to have a go at, and turned out that I was good enough at it that. Um, I was, you know, invited back, and and then the journey of sort of self development and uh, progression started. So that's an interesting one. Then, so you've got to be compact physique. You've got to, you can't weigh too much because that's a burden on the boat. But there's a personal characteristic as well. There's a there's a sense of authority from a smallish person that and that that can influence the boat. That's quite an interesting dynamic. Do you get? selected based on on those characteristics too yes uh, ultimately um, you get selected based on a number of competencies how you steer is is certainly one of them it's there is an art to steering a 60 foot shell using a rudder that is the size of no more than uh, no bigger than you know large postage stamp um, there is an art to doing that well and doing it in a way that doesn't disrupt the speed or the balance of the boat. Um, get selected based on your watermanship um, mm. because it's not just steering, but it's actually manoeuvring the boat safely and also efficiently. Um, and 
you know, that requires skill and judgment and experience and ability to read water, particularly if that water is is moving, uh, which is often the case uh, in in the UK. Um, in the UK, a lot of rowing is done on rivers, uh, and so that water is flowing sometimes not just flowing um, based on land water, but it's flowing based on the tide. And so there are a number of different uh, aspects to watermanship that need to be mastered, and that ultimately becomes a basis upon which one is selected. And then uh, the ability to to lead, to coach, to motivate, and to command a degree of authority with athletes that are doing all of the physical work. Um, and it certainly takes a particular kind of personality in a, and also you know, longevity of experience to work out how to get the most out of athletes uh, who, as I said, are doing the physical work, but taking <laughs> commands from somebody who isn't. So mm. it, it's a combination of strengths and skills across all of those facets of the discipline that uh, are taken into account when it comes to selection. That's, that's interesting. The watermanship, is that something that's learnt by feel, experience, or can you study it? Can you read uh, the signals uh, in the moment that are obse- observable, uh, the, the tides and the, the actions or the data and the information that's coming through? Uh, I, first of all, if you have a good coach, it's a great starting point because a coach who is a good waterman... Uh, will be able to help you identify how to read water and how to read the dynamics of the water and how to anticipate, therefore, what you need to do with the boat in order to make sure that you can manage through changing flow, um, changing wind patterns. I think there's a lot of self-learning involved as well. Um, One of my experiences as a cox is that actually generally there isn't a huge amount of coaching available for coxes. Mm. Um, And so I had to learn myself Um, and um, I did a bit of sailing um, uh, many years ago now but I think sailing is a discipline in which you learn to read the water um, as a matter of course and and quite a bit of that was transferable Um, so it's a combination of coaching from people who know uh, but also I think in order to excel, you have to have a desire for self-development and, and, and teach yourself. Mm. When I think about some of the the other Coxes other than yourself, like Rolly Douglas, Gary Herbert, Zoe Duke, Toledo, there's some charismatic figures in there, and a different, but very different in the ways they have performed, the potential contribution, the dynamic that they add. Um, how important is that just as much fit and bond with the crew members as much as your the art and skill of, of delivering the watermanship? I think the fit and bond with the crew members is, is critical, particularly for um, a boat which has aspirations to be a fast boat and to mm. win major titles. Because ultimately the, the athletes that are propelling the boat are going to be tested to the very limit of their physical capability Uh, and in a racing situation it will be possible for a cox that is well respected that commands the trust of the athletes 
to draw just that little bit more out of them that can make the difference ultimately between winning a gold medal or, or coming second. So I think the bond and fit is, is critical, which is why, generally speaking, the oarsmen or oarswomen themselves will have a big say in who is selected as the Cox, as opposed to it just being a, a decision for the coach. OK, so the data might show that with one Cox, they might steer slightly better, but ultimately the, the crew are giving full effort and gas uh, on the day, they've got to back you, they've got to trust you, they've got to know, okay, that's a good egg that's going to look after us. Absolutely. Ultimately, the crew wants to win. They therefore want the cocks that's going to make the boat go fastest mm-hmm. um, or ensure that the boat gets from A to B as quickly as possible um, is another way of putting it because uh, the cocks always adds dead weight and therefore has to (laughs) (laughs) accept a degree of um, a degree to which you know you're slowing the boat down it's then when everyone has that dead weight on board who can um, make the most of that in terms of translating it into boat speed it's an interesting dynamic isn't it the 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 bond uh, the added value within the team you're you're active but you're not physically active it's quite an interesting dynamic to hold that isn't it that you're you've got a responsibility to them um, whilst you're steering them in the right direction, literally. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it is It is an interesting dynamic. Uh, one of the things that I did, certainly when I was uh, at Oxford, was try to do some of the land training with the, with the team as well, so that when we were off the water, I was part of the crew. Uh, some of the heavyweights were a bit of a challenge, but you know, circuit training I could do, the plyometrics I could do, uh, and the five-side football I could do. So I think being physical with the crew at times when it works for you, even though um, I was you know, much slighter than some of uh, the rowers that I uh, coxed. I mean, just to put that into into context, when I went to the Worlds in 2001 in the cox pair, I weighed 55 kilos and Matt Pinsent weighed 110 so he was exactly twice my weight so now at the boat race this year i was involved in supporting james to become the oldest person uh in the cambridge crew um and they had and then i was involved in the bbc commentary uh and they said oh can you comment on the heart rates Uh, i don't know if you saw this but we put heart rate monitors on a couple of the the oarsmen and women but also on the cocks and so before we started, I was talking to the production crew and I said, OK, heart rate monitors have a tendency to slip, fall, lose signal, for example. So my suggestion is that you stick them on, for example. You tape them on so you make sure you get a good reading. And you can normally tell if it's not picking up properly because the heart rate goes down. Now, we started getting the figures through for the oarsmen on the, on the start line. And it was 120, 130. For the Cox, it was the same. And I thought, there's something wrong there. I think there's some, the data's a bit off. Um, but it was just that anticipatory heart rate. And then they started, they started up and, and the athletes were producing heart rates of 190. And so was the Cox, 195, I think the, the Cox got to. How is it 
And, I, and so clearly there's a lot of shouting. There's probably a lot of abdominal work going on there <laughs> in heaving uh, and, and willing people on. But how did it feel for you in that moment of competition, uh, experiencing that, that pressure, but also you've got to be thinking clearly too and your heart rate's too high. You're probably not. Yeah. I, I have to confess, I, so I did see those heart rates and I have to confess to being quite surprised that yeah. the, the heart rate of the cocks was so high uh, because I don't, not that I ever measured my heart rate while I was racing, but I don't recall it ever being at that kind of peak. Um, I know what that feels like uh, and uh, I don't remember ever feeling that way when I was racing. In fact, I do remember my boat race quite vividly and I remember being very nervous before we went onto the water and I can imagine my heart rate having been quite high at that point but one of the things that uh, I also remember was then the sense of calm that descended as we got onto the water and the familiarity of being in the boat and going through a process that we had been through time and time and time again actually meant that I felt reasonably relaxed and calm uh, all the way up during the warm-up until we then got onto the state boat and then there was the slightly uncomfortable anticipation of having to wait five six or seven minutes before we started because there was some sort of delay related to the time of the tv broadcast and that just gives you the opportunity to get nervous all over again but then again once the race started I felt very much in a familiar zone uh, and you're absolutely right. I think the Cox's role then is to be the clearest thinker, to have a cool head under pressure. I remember that that phrase that the 2003 England Rug- Rugby World Cup winning side using teacup, think mm. clearly under pressure. Uh, and that was very much what I considered my role to be. Um, and... I don't remember my heart rate being as high as 190. So I was a bit surprised by that. I even wondered mm. if the data was was coming back erroneously from the boat and it was actually an athlete that was recording 194. But um, uh, I don't know the ins and outs. Of yeah, we'll have to... I did I did talk to some of the coaches afterwards to say that might be something you want to check up on, see if that's legitimate. And if so, you need to look after them and train yeah. them and but also potentially de-escalate some of that because... yeah. Without that active uh, blood pumping around the the body, uh, there's a potential overcooking of the psyche there, where the heart rate is beating too hard because of the adrenaline in the system. They're, they're almost too psyched out, um, which is which is interesting, isn't it? Uh, so you were a bit more of a cool customer. Uh, <laughs> well, um, I I tried to be. You know, I think that was that was the aim because. Any uh, intensity that you, as a cox, experience in a feeling is is amplified mm. down the boat because there's a microphone only a centimetre away from your mouth um, and there are speakers all the way down the boat. And as you know, Steve, I think relaxation, the controlled application of power in a relaxed way under pressure is the key to making a boat go fast and I think that the athletes will respond to a voice of tension 
uh, in one way and, uh, and they'll respond to a voice of, uh, of relaxed, calmed, controlled application of power and aggression in another way. Uh, and I saw my role as trying to make sure that we were aggressive, powerful, but in a controlled way. Um, I think about the Dutch eight in 1996 that won the Olympics. Uh, they didn't just win the Olympic gold medal, but I think they were the first eight for a long time to win the gold medal at the Olympics, having not led at halfway. The Germans led right. at halfway. Um, the eight is the quickest boat. It's hard to change gear and change pace. Um, and so I think about that crew doing that elusive thing in rowing incredibly well, which is to apply power in a controlled way under pressure, under pressure because they were losing it halfway. Um, and that, I think, is the, the key role of the Cox is to try and enable that kind of approach in a pressured situation. Hmm. So we, we worked with, uh, with Matt and James in 2001 when they were going for this double-double you went first, coxed pairs, and then two hours later they were taking on the, the coxless pairs so in the final for both. And I have very poor memory of those because I was experiencing 194 heart rate uh, because they were doing something quite unusual, and that is not leading. Uh, what were your memories of that that first race and how, uh, how they didn't necessarily... Um, control the race in the way that they wanted to for coxless pairs but what's your memory of the coxed pairs where you've got this unusual dynamic where James is pulling as hard as he possibly can and Matt is trying to do the minimum <laughs> how are you managing that yeah it was our plan in the cox pair so the plan for the two races was first race race pace second race race profile mm. and so the intention in the first race was to go off reasonably hard but come down and settle to race pace quite quickly dominate the race early on and then be able to look back on the opposition and uh, do the minimum amount whilst constantly monitoring what the opposition were doing and we did that well to a degree but as I recall James who has always been a very committed athlete to um, say the least. <laughs> to say the least, um, may not have uh, may not have preserved his energy quite as effectively as Matt did, uh, and, and I really felt that in in the way that the boat was moving for for um, that middle thousand. Uh, and and so the risk there was that there was a bit more energy expended than would have been ideal. Um, Nonetheless, broadly speaking, the race went to plan until the last 100 metres when the Italians, uh, who were one lane across from us, and contained one of the Italian oarsmen who'd been in the Coxless Four in Sydney the year before that had just lost to, to Matt James and Steve Redgrave when he won his fifth gold medal as well as Tim Foster. Um, they, they sprinted hard for the line and almost caught a snapping but not quite. But it did mean that in the last five to ten strokes we had to jack the rate up and and 
and work a bit harder than was ideal and cross the line just 0.42 of a second in front. And were you able to feel that and manage that? So calm down, James, or uh, a little bit more, Matt? <laughs> so, <laughs> Spinning plates a little bit there. Yeah, so I, I was definitely trying to make sure uh, that uh, James in particular was was relaxed and calm and, and we weren't overcooking it. Uh, and that we were very conscious, particularly through that middle thousand, trying to remind everyone, uh, r- remind them both that you know this was where the coxless pair was going to be won by being as efficient and relaxed and effective as possible in the middle thousand. The cox pair, this is where they were going to win the coxless pair by saving as much energy uh, as possible for the for the second race. Mm. And yeah, that coxless pair final was awful. I mean. I remember recalculating hydration formula because I think I got it wrong because they were trailing at fourth or the, for most of the race and then they came through and then caught a crab at the end. It was That was an emotional experience, actually, <laughs> on the day. It was. It was very emotional. Uh, I When we crossed the line, having won the Cox pair, uh, it was my first World Championship gold medal and I felt absolutely nothing because mm. I knew that the job was not really going to be done until... I knew that that gold medal hadn't come at too high a price because a silver medal in the coxless pair or less would just be failure for the whole project. So the coxless pair final was agonising to watch because not only were they trailing from early on, and as you say, I think they were fourth at halfway, uh, they had no history of trailing. Yeah in every race in the coxless pair and indeed in the coxless almost every race in the coxless four in the cycle between atlanta and sydney james and matt always led Uh, and so this was unknown territory for them and for everyone watching who was supporting them so it was agonizing but inexorably in that third 500 they started to come back and then in the last 500 they did i remember lead the yugoslavs briefly before uh, the steering went all awry and I think James hooked a boy. Matt was steering. James hooked a boy, caught a crab. They then lost ground on the Yugoslavs but then made it up in the last five or ten strokes and crossed the line. I'm not even sure if I remember when they crossed the line whether or not I knew then that they'd won. I don't think I did because it was just too close. It was Mm. 0.02 of a second. That's about a bow ball or an inch so it was impossible to tell from the stands or even from the TV so it went to photo finish yeah um, it's a wonderful picture of them both just giving it as much as possible to to cross that line uh, first they, they almost needed you just to sort of jump back in to get the steering right for the last 50 metres didn't they <laughs> well <laughs> that's what like... I said to people afterwards like now you know why they needed a cox yeah. couldn't, <laughs> couldn't get down 2k without hooking a boy <laughs> So, so you've sampled and experienced that that elite end of sport. You've world champion uh, supporting those guys. Um, just if if you would, could you just give us a background as to that was because that was eighteen years ago now. <laughs> mm. um, your, the background since into the business world, and but also any lessons that you've learned from elite sport and sport and how that's influenced your approach to business, but also leadership. Yeah. So. The way I think about my career is I've had really two careers and they've they've been in parallel. Uh, One has been in sport and in rowing uh, and the other has been in business, particularly in 
finance, media, and now, and now technology. Um, and and after two thousand and one, I retired from international or serious international competition, but carried on in rowing for uh, until twenty sixteen. Actually, uh, competed competed at Henley in in 2007 and then at the head of the Charles which is huge event in in Boston um, many times uh, leading up to 2016 in fact with both Matt and James we uh, uh, we all won Masters 8 uh, which is the event for crews with an average age of 40 plus uh, back in 2012 2015 2016 so carried on competing uh, but throughout that whole period I've also had a career in business. I trained in finance, uh, qualified as a chartered accountant, spent time in investment banking, working at Goldman Sachs, and then worked for media companies like Sky, BBC Worldwide, uh, and now I'm here at Google. And my sporting career has undoubtedly taught me very important and valuable lessons that I still hold dear and, and deploy daily in my professional life. Um, it, one of the things that I valued in sport was the clarity of objective that competing to win provided and although in a business environment it's far harder to clarify and define an objective so clearly as crossing the line first nonetheless that mindset helps me to develop focus for myself and for my for the teams that I lead because I value based on my sporting career the the motivating and focusing effect that having clarity of objective really provides it might sound self-evidently true but I also know from having worked from worked alongside people who haven't had the kind of sporting experience that I have that I think it just comes more naturally to people who have been motivated by clear competitive goals in a sporting context. So that's one thing that I definitely... And what does that give you? Is that, is that sharpening the mind, the sharpening the focus, um, it, it just diffusing any other sort of blurred objectives? That's what it's all about, the, the, the performance that you've got to produce. Yes, it, it provides that clarifying focus and... It helps to ensure that when we're doing something as simple as having a meeting uh, to discuss whatever it might be, a, a business topic or might be about uh, team development, that the ultimate objective is something that is much clearer at the outset. One of the things that I value about my sporting experience is that every single training session had a clearly defined purpose and then after that training session we would review how well we'd delivered on that purpose how well we would performed relative to our intent and I think that mindset is helpful in a business context as well uh, because it makes you more disciplined about the way that you use time uh, and a particular formal business 
event like a meeting or a um, a, a, a board discussion or whatever it might be a one-to-one meeting uh, I think that that clarity of focus on objective and end result is something that helps me at least try to get as much out of the time as possible mm. and I think in, in, in some ways I think my my experience and observation is that what it also then does is it start to get you curious about how you then achieve that and so the methodology of performing and performance you get curious about learning about that which I think sometimes doesn't necessarily transfer as easily um, because if you're focused on the objective and outcome all the time the process sometimes gets a little bit left but that's certainly something from the world of sports performance I've observed. Is there anything that you've you've found over the years? Because it's a lovely metaphor, isn't it? And you can speak about performance and, and and people can reflect and be inspired by that. But not everything cuts and pastes across the business, does it? I mean, have your observations about... Actually, there are some things that do and don't. Yeah, I... I I, I agree with you. I, not not everything cuts and pastes across. And I think one of the struggles that uh, I have had is that often that clarity of objective, of destination, of, of, of mission is is not as clearly available um, in business as it is in sport. Uh, and And so some of the some of the ways in which you maximise performance in sport are not necessarily translatable. Um, the other thing is that you know, working over a 30-year career is, is it's, a, it's a long commitment. Uh, and without often the, the same degree of sort of spike in... Uh, performance that's required it, it's about sustaining a level of performance for for a long period of time um, rather than necessarily seeing it deliver at spike moments like in olympic games or world championships um, so you know opacity of ultimate objective the fact that everyone has different motivations um, people work for different reasons some people are inherently motivated by the opportunity to feel fulfilled and to derive a sense of achievement. Other people are working because they feel they have to because ultimately there is a mortgage to pay. And so having that myriad of uh, objectives within an organisation makes it difficult sometimes to create alignment in the way that you can create alignment in a sporting environment. Okay, so that's interesting. Um, So even for the longest sustained performer... Uh, is still relatively short in comparison to the energy required or the pacing required across the course of a year uh, where where actually there's there's peaks and troughs natural pulses of work and deadlines and quarters to work to but that's sustaining that over decades yeah absolutely mm. yeah interesting and and so um your perspective would be really interesting in that the dynamic of let's win well, let's do this really well. 
because ultimately sport is a metaphor for endeavour and so on, versus a much more aggressive win at all costs. I'm keen to get your perspective on on some of the decision-making frameworks you've used in, in the governance roles that you've served, where ultimately I think what well, I would assume that you're dealing with some quite complex uh, issues. Uh, if it's come to a board level, it's probably going to be a, a 49-51 decision. It's not going to be a knock it out of the park. That's an easy yes. If it's got to your level, it's a, it's a difficult decision to make. So I'm, I'm interested to know how you make some of those decisions in the governance role, but also in your leadership roles in business. Yeah. I think in leadership roles in business... For me, the decisions are rooted in um, values. Uh, the values of, be it my organisation or, or, or the business overall. Uh, and you know, I'm, I feel fortunate um, to work right now at, a, at an organisation which I consider to be, to me, mission-led. And I think that that mission is one that uh, has some very strong values associated with it and I think when it comes to the 5149 decisions they can be best made by ensuring that they're rooted in which decision is most most faithful to the values and the mission Um, that's how I think about it when you talk about the governance role I I was uh, on the board of UK Sport for, for four years uh, and again, I think that is an organisation that had a, a very clear vision and mission, which was to inspire the nation through sporting success uh, at the Olympic and Paralympic level and on the world stage. And again, I think when the decisions were marginal, they were rooted in well, what do we consider is closest to the vision and mission, the ultimate vision and mission of uh, the organisation? Uh, and you know, for, for me, having that North Star has been, both for the organisation and for me personally, has been what's helped when it comes to making the difficult decisions. Mm. So it's not about... It is then about winning well as opposed to winning at all costs. To use the, you know, the phraseology that you started the question. Mm. And um, and that sort of politics level um, decisions based on values. There's a lot of dynamics in the room at a board level. Um, what's your advice or guidance or observations of being able to to work with that skillfully? Um, and accept that it's a dynamic, but, um, but do that well. It's a good question. <laughs> uh, I think, provided that the collective ambition of the organisation is the same one then politics um, at a board level um, is really about people coming from different perspectives I think if everyone shares that common 
aspiration, the common ambition for the organisation to succeed, be it you know UK sport succeeding in uh, inspiring the nation and delivering on you know, ambitious medal targets, then uh, any politics is really much more a manifestation of people coming from different perspectives. And I think one of the skills in operating at that level is to try and understand the perspective from which somebody else is coming at the same problem uh, and put yourself in that person's position or shoes in order to relate to that issue from their perspective and help then bridge the gap that might exist. So sometimes it's not politics so much as just coming at things from a different perspective. So diversity in the boardroom, diversity in teams is valuable to create a spot uh, opportunities to see a rounded perspective, but ultimately it creates difference. <laughs> and, uh, and therefore you have to have a, a way in which you can pull people together to a common agreement and make decisions and take, make, make progress. Yes, yes. I, d- I think diversity is about you know, having diversity of thought and diversity of thought is clearly going to lead to different takes, different opinions. But there is value in that, provided that you've got the mechanics and the skill um, at board level in order to corral that difference into um, an aligned point of view that ultimately most people, because oftentimes you won't get everyone to agree, most people agree is in the best interest of fulfilling the, the vision and mission of the organisation. Mm. And so how, how do you manage yourself and um, board level discussions, common agreement, not everybody agreeing, but ultimately you, you, you have to move to decisions. But as a leader at Google, uh, I would imagine that You'll, you'll encounter hundreds of decisions that you've got to make on a day-to-day basis. And do you have a, a, a system or a method to manage your own decisions, decision-making fatigue, <laughs> uh, differentiate the important ones from the little ones? Or how, how do you manage that? So one of the things that I try to do is make sure that I focus my effort my, my physical and my mental effort on what I'm uniquely well-placed to do. I'm very fortunate in that I'm a leader of a large team um, of incredibly capable and talented people. Uh, and therefore, the key to managing at scale is to delegate and empower the team as much as I possibly can and focus on what I am uniquely placed to do and what I therefore cannot um, Delegate. Is that a dint of your responsibility or the role or your style or your capability? I think it's a, it's a, uh, it's primarily by dint of my role, my responsibility, where that means that I will sit in the organisation, the, 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 the forums that I'll sit in um, and where I can have influence. Uh, and... I'll probably say my experience rather than my capability um, because my capability is a function of experience over a number of years. So it's a combination of those factors. Uh, And what I try to do is, is be really disciplined about whether or not a meeting or a decision or um, an intervention is one that 
I'm best placed to do or whether it's one that somebody on my behalf can do because otherwise the sheer volume um, of decisions and workload is is too great to manage and indeed it's my responsibility as a leader to empower my team the most effective thing that I can do in my role really ultimately is to hire and nurture the talent of great people Mm. a bit of a slight tangent then do you have a framework in terms of managing your ability to spot opportunities versus balancing risk that sort of keeping the boat afloat and making sure it's accelerating like you're patching up the holes and in the hull but but also giving the the boat some some speed you have a sense of of how you try and spot or look for or cover that balancing act off yeah i so i think first of all uh one of the things that i I talk about with my team is the importance of focusing on the climate as opposed to the weather. And what I mean by that is that it's very easy, particularly in a business such as this, which generates a huge amount of data um, and in which there is a huge volume of business being done from one day to the next to be focused on Uh, short-term patterns and trends. But I think what's important in order for us to spot the opportunities over the longer term is to see what those patterns add up to over time. And so the analogy is to be focused a little less on the day-to-day weather but more on how the climate is changing. Uh, And so I think that involves having our heads up, our eyes on the horizon, taking a long-term view, focusing in particular on the big macro drivers uh, of opportunity, be they, for example, um, scale of internet adoption or smartphone adoption over the long term uh, in emerging economies. Uh, So it's about having an eye on the horizon and focusing on how the climate is changing rather than the eyes on the here and now, the the next quarter and and what the weather is doing. Mm. You see what I mean? Okay. That does, that speaks to your unique position. Uh, If you're not doing that as a exec at Google, who is going to be in that sense? You're uniquely placed and therefore have a duty and responsibility to be thinking bigger picture. That's what I'm hearing. Um, that's, that's interesting. That's fascinating. So that the um, so St Catherine's College, mm-hmm. if I'm if I'm correct, yeah. I've done done a little bit of research about the the motto, uh, Nova et Vetera, I believe, uh, things new and old. So I'll give you uh, two questions based on that. Uh, things new. What's next for you? What's what's a challenge coming up? That, that you're anticipating or that you're looking at and that you're, that you're that's gathering your interest? Uh, well, on, on, on my horizon is uh, the way that Henley Royal Regatta is evolving uh, mm-hmm. over time. We haven't talked about that, but one of the ways in which I'm still involved in the sport of rowing is that I'm on the committee of management 
of Henley Royal Regatta, which is the world's oldest and preeminent international, you know, annual international rowing regatta, founded in 1839. And so we've just hit 180 years. Mm. And actually that motto has quite a lot of relevance to Henley Royal Regatta because it's 180 years old, but each year is trying to maintain tradition, but through innovation and embracing what's new. good example of that was you know, five years ago, we decided to live stream all five days of racing on YouTube. We were the first event uh, ever to live stream coverage from uh, an unmanned aerial vehicle from a drone. Uh, and so that was pretty innovative. But other ways in which we're innovating is that we're trying to ensure that Henley continues to move with the times whilst preserving all of the wonderful traditions that makes it so special. And that means reflecting the nature of the sport today. 180 years ago when Henley first started, only men rode. Now, rowing is a, is a very gender-balanced sport. And in fact, a lot of the growth in rowing over the last seven to ten years particularly in the UK and the US has been in women's rowing and in fact quite a lot of the growth in women's rowing over the last few years in the UK was inspired by the great success of our, uh, our uh, rowers who won three gold medals our female rowers who won three gold medals at London 2012 and and so we're on a journey at Henley to expand and ensure that we can include more events for women uh, and that's something that I've been very uh, involved in we're on a journey potentially to go from five days to six days to introduce more women's events and continue the drive to ensure that the regatta reflects the nature of the sport today so that's something that from a rowing and sporting perspective I'm, I'm very uh, involved in and passionate about. Did I see a did I see a tweet of a picture of you and Matt Pince and Sarah Winkler saying that when a few years ago that I proposed this idea of live streaming and I was laughed at? So that sounded like it required this new idea, maintaining the traditions, but it also required all your skill of governance and leadership and influencing and politics to to make that happen. It wasn't it was just an easy an easy sell by the sounds of it. No, it wasn't an easy sell, uh, partly because it's. Uh, it's reasonably costly, <laughs> uh, and although Henley is uh, a very successful event in that you know, it has proved itself capable of um, turning a reasonable profit um, quite consistently now, which gets ploughed back into the sport. Historically, all the money the regatta has made has gone into the charitable trust that then has gone into the development of this sport at grassroots level. Nonetheless, it rightly remain sensitive to significant increases in cost and deciding to self-produce so that we could maintain editorial control and live stream was a, a, a costly uh, commitment uh, and not everyone was convinced that it was the right thing for us to do. Having done that now, what we've seen is, first of all, those people who always loved the regatta um, love it all the more now because they can experience it in a different way and those pe people previously that didn't experience the regatta, those people rowing around the world but had never visited, now can see the magic that is Henley 
uh, live on YouTube, and and that's motivated a huge amount uh, more crews to to come to uh, the regatta and race. We see record entries now, almost year after year. So, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't easy um, at an event that has thrived for so long by preserving its traditions. It's sometimes difficult to introduce a degree of change. Mm. Um, I personally draw inspiration from something that I think is a mantra for Wimbledon, which is that the best way to preserve tradition is to continue to innovate. And that's something that I think we tried to do Mm. uh, at Henley. Fantastic. So um, something old then, uh, what would be a lesson to your younger self if you go back to that boat race, Neil Shigani, uh, uh, 1991 Mm. what would be if you could go back in time what would be a lesson that you would share with yourself uh, to equip you to the years ahead it's a good question I think that the lesson would be have a bit more self-belief I think confidence is so important in sport and in business and in life. And and I think that at the time, I probably didn't have quite enough self-belief. And I think that limited my ambition. Uh, you talked about some of the other coxes that you've come across. I think, you know, Gary... Herbert is a contemporary of mine and um, you know one of the things I admire about Gary is that he always had a huge amount of self-belief um, and I felt that I could only really justify self-belief when I'd done a lot of stuff but I think there is value in believing not in what you've done but your potential and I think if I could tell my younger self something it would be to have a bit more belief in my potential rather than wait for it to happen lovely i love that that's fantastic and 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 speaks to your journey in the sense that you've you've proven yourself over time and you know you've got to the top of sport but you've got to the top of of the business world and and creating events and governance so that's uh, that's a wonderful lesson to to take neil thank you so much Thank you very much, indeed, Steve. It's been a pleasure and a privilege. If you want to follow more from Neil, then you can do so on Instagram and Twitter, where he carries the handle Neil Shigani, surname spelled C-H-U-G-A-N-I. You can follow us on Twitter at support underscore champs and me at Ingham underscore Steve. You can follow us at Facebook, YouTube, Instagram and subscribe through the website. And if you're feeling like supporting and championing us, then please do leave a review on iTunes. <laughs>